Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Second of September, Saturday. At the edgings of the day, a delinquent V of geese transect a sinking sun. As they reappear, another flight has joined them. They continue in a loose straggle north. A cool whisper of air as we round the base of the hill. Distant voices float across the water. As the sun sinks below the west, the chant of jackdaws. August's blue moon is now on the wane and is rising fat and low in the east. And the day has slowly bloomed into summer and has left us with a tropical polished sky of deepening inky blues. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting into the darkness of a still September night to you wherever you are. I'm so glad you've come and are here to share such a beautiful starful night. The kettle is on, the welcome is warm, so step aboard and make yourself at home. Welcome aboard. Well, it appears that summer has returned, for a few days at least. Today has been bathed in sunshine and heat, and the forecast promises a few more days of it to come, and that the temperatures are set to rise even higher. It's good to feel the soapy warmth of sunshine on your shoulders again. And even if the schools are going back, and the calendar's divisions click from summer to autumn, at least as far as the meteorological calendar is concerned, September, as our old friend Miles Hadfield writes, is the time when the woodsides and hedgerows are a tangle. We have rose hips, thorn haws and hazelnuts. Below them are the red berries of cuckoo pint. The whole mass is overgrown by twiners and stragglers, all in fruit. In a dense mass, two are almost universal, blackberry and blackbriony. I couldn't have put it better myself, Miles. The hedgerows here along the towpath are brimming and bustling, still for the most part full and green, but now lit by black and scarlet lanterns. The heavy snowy drifts of hawthorn blossom have been transformed into dense and heavy clusters of red hawberries, and a little further down the canal from here, where we were tied up last week, the branches were so thick and heavy with fruit that they were hanging low, almost touching the water. Blackberries and sloe, on the other hand, seem rather patchy, particularly slow, around here at least. It's been a busy time for us here on the boat. 
And over the last couple of weeks, we've been taken up with grabbing the opportunity offered by a few days of dry and pressing on with the jobs that we were hoping to have completed by July. The main one has been derusting, preparing and repainting the gas locker. It's outside and so very dependent upon the weather. And it's a horrible job. I'd even go so far as to say that if you're like us and don't own a macerated toilet, that it is the worst job on the boat. Perhaps repainting the engine bay being a very close second. The gas locker is where we carry our colour gas containers, which supply our oven and hob. And although not always the case, most narrowboats have them fitted right at the very front end of the bow of the boat. It makes sense, because that's where you want the weight to be. And gas bottles are very heavy. Partly to offset the weight of the engine at the back or the stern. And this makes the boat easier to handle. And the locker is accessed through a hinged hatch at the top. And for some peculiar and perhaps perverse reason, the opening for the hatch is nearly always only just wide enough to lower a 13 kilogram bottle of calagas through it. And when full, they are heavy. Again, like most boats, we carry two of these bottles, one for use and one for spare. This makes taking out a used bottle and replacing it with a new one a real and sometimes literal pain. One of the stipulations is that the gas locker, unsurprisingly, needs to be free of rust. However, in a boat subject to all the extremes of weather, rusting is almost inevitable. And getting to grips with it has been on our horizon for at least a couple of years now. But although it doesn't sound much, what is really horrible about the job is that unless you are a double-jointed contortionist acrobat, it's the sheer inaccessibility of it. That's the problem. It wouldn't be too bad if you could crawl inside it, but the opening of our locker is just too small for me to fit my shoulders through, even at a diagonal. And also... I'm finding that the older I get, the more claustrophobic I am becoming. It's strange, because when I was a lad, I used to love squeezing through the tightest spaces. At some point, I was given by an uncle whose relatives were coal miners, a real-life, 100% genuine, hard-leather miner's helmet. Actually, if we'd held on to it, it'd probably be worth a small fortune now. Of course, it was far too big for me, so I used to clamp it to my head with the help of the industrial-strength elastic that Mum used for mending my school shorts. And I'd sellotaped an old bicycle lamp to the front of it that tended to make it font-heavy. The lamp was fitted with some batteries purloined from various toys, and I would then embark on the most tortuously confined adventures. My major claim of fame was to be able to traverse the entire length and breadth of the underside of my bed without touching the floor, which might not seem like much of an achievement if you had not seen how much stuff I could stuff under my bed. However, 
Unfortunately, those days are long gone, and tight spaces begin to make me feel itchy and rather uncomfortable. Well, the inaccessibility of the locker means that the only way to work on it is from hanging upside down in through the locker opening. And even then there are still crooks and crannies that are just out of reach. Donna's ingenious solution of fixing a paintbrush to a broom handle with elastic bands made short work of that, though. Nevertheless, we both have aches where aches weren't even designed for. But now, barring a further coat on the base, which is a bit easier to reach for added reinforcement, the job's done. There are still a few more jobs that we want to get done while the weather holds. The universal truth of boat maintenance is that the list of jobs to be done is inversely proportional to the number of jobs you complete. But at least those are all undercover, so it's not so much of a problem if we do get some rain. And all this reminds me of something that I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. I'm aware that in the earlier episodes of this podcast, I would often get questions from listeners about living on a boat, or actually they were more general about the canals. For example, can you turn around on a canal, or do you have to go right to the end? Or how deep is the canal? Those sorts of questions. And I'm aware that since then, we've got many more new listeners. And it strikes me that you might have some questions that you would like to ask. And from time to time, I do get asked questions from listeners who are either thinking about moving from bricks to water or are planning on booking a holiday on the UK canals. And I sort of miss that close interaction of those earlier podcasts. Therefore, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm planning to do an episode that's based around all the questions that you might want to ask. Now, those questions could be on life aboard or canals in general, or even questions about the podcast and or specific episodes or themes that I may have covered that you might want a bit more information on or some of the poems or some of the books that I have been reading out from. And if there are enough, I might spread them out a little bit and split them into perhaps two different episodes, one on boat life and canals and the other one more about the podcast and some of the themes and topics that we've been looking at. So if you do have a question, then you can contact me in a number of different ways. You can either drop me a line at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com or go to the noswpod.com website and click on the contact form or record a voicemail, that would be good, by simply clicking on the microphone icon. And then I can perhaps, if you want to be able to play that recording and answer you almost kind of like face to face. Alternatively, you can leave a comment or message me via Facebook or Instagram or Mastodon or X, formerly Twitter. All the details are in the program notes below. And I've also hyperlinked those in the transcript. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and the sorts of things that you might want to know a little bit more about. Thank you so much to the listeners on Spotify for leaving the comments and 
thank you and hello to Whisper, Rev B and Martin. Thank you for your encouraging words. They are really appreciated. And thank you also to Dana Reed over on Instagram for alerting me about the British Podcast Awards. I didn't know anything about it, so thanks so much. The problem is the closing date is now fairly close, so I haven't mentioned it, but I might consider it next year if they run it. And the, the problem is, is that I get really awkward and, and uncomfortable about entering competitions. The very few that I have entered, as soon as I have submitted my entry, I then go into panic by thinking, oh no, wouldn't it be awful if I win and I have to do something? So, um, I will give it some more thought and, um, but thank you so much, Dana. I really do appreciate it. And hello also to Tracy, uh, also on Instagram. Yeah, it's lovely that the flash of electric blue of kingfishers are becoming once again a fairly common sight here. It's good to see them bouncing back after last winter. Hello also to LJ and Bodhi, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed the ambient soundscape accompanying last week's episode on rain. I found that getting effective sound washes and soundscapes quite tricky on these podcasts, especially because the process applied by the podcast host tries to filter out extraneous noise. This is because those are actually the very sounds that most podcasts don't want included in their recordings. Consequently, although I spend a lot of time experimenting with sound levels, what can sound fairly clear and loud on my original masters ends up being filtered out or sounding very different on the uploaded file. And also I found that how the device on which the podcast is listened to can also have a huge effect on how it sounds. And I have to admit that initially I've been fairly disappointed with the finished mix on certainly the earlier episodes, but I think we're slowly getting there and perseverance is paying off. So I am really glad that you've enjoyed the, the sounds as well as the, the talk. And over on Facebook, hello and thank you to Cheryl Davidson and Deb Moon Mountford. And thank you, Sherry, for getting back to me about how to pronounce your surname. I think I'll go for Rauch, but no doubt in the future a Rauch might appear when you're least expecting it. And over on X or Twitter, what is happening there? Hello to the Watts. And it was great to see you on Vanessa's Mindful Narrowboat vlog this week. And also to the Starways and to Kaz Sargent. And on Masterton, thank you to Anna McKellar. I'm really glad that you also enjoyed last week's episode. It was also lovely to get an email from Margaret. And Margaret, I'm so pleased the way that things are working out. And yet I totally agree with you. There are times when doing nothing is essential. And one of the high spots of this week was getting an email from my old friend Tony. Thank you so much, Tony. And more on that next week. And finally, a huge thank you to all our Lockwheelers for supporting this podcast. Anna V, Sean James Cameron. Sean, how's your idea of the podcast going? Phil Pickin, Orange Cookie, Donna Kelly, Mary Keane. Tony Rutherford, Arabella Holtzapfel, Rory and MJ and Kayla, 
narrowboat precious jet, Linda Reynolds-Birkins, Richard Noble, Carol Ferguson, Tracy Thomas, Mike and Tricia Stowe, and Madeline Smith. Thank you. I have left the horses behind, contented in their grazing. The vegetation is still duet. My boots glisten, turning into small silos of brown seed heads that stick to the leather uppers. And the bottoms of my trousers cling to my ankles. The damp leaches up to my knees. And I can see what those who made this trail I'm following cannot see. The fields around, the flash of light glancing off the canal through the screen of trees and shrubbery, the line of hedge wallowing down into the shallows, and the other one cresting the skyline. Hawthorn, thick and bushy. The old grandmother tree, misshapen, ragged, her old oak-like profile has been long ago eroded and dissolved by the waters of time. And up a bit from her, the first of the convocation, young still, in oak years, vigorous, the poster boy of oaks, the kind of oak you will find illustrating the ladybird book of trees. And it's the hedge that always draws my eye the scraggy bolster of hawthorn, ash and oak. And along the canal side, heap a rolling, boisterous tangle of bramble, falling over itself in its uncontainable enthusiasm for life, sprung arms of thickly thorned limbs hugging itself. It's interspersed with nettle and reed, flag and loothstrife. Thrown perfect yellow stars of St. John's Wort, decorate a hummock just out of its reach. The hedge borders me on three sides. In winter it follows the contours of the field, but the touch of spring brings magic, and it bursts upwards, billowing skyward. Cut loose from the laws of geography and geology, it paints the skyline with new contours of its own. Spring and summer can do that. Remind us that we are not simply earthbound creatures. We belong to the sky too. Roots do not hold us down. And the hedges bustle with song. Gold crests chattering like troops of monkeys. Wagtails strut and wag. Dunnocks and sparrows bustle, and of course the wren's disconcertingly loud call. Juvenile corvids scrabble from branch to branch. Blackbird and thrush balance on the hedge tops, surfing the motionless green cresting wave of vegetation. As much as fields can be fun, it's the hedges that is where things happen. Perhaps that's why hedges increasingly draw me. Although it's also something about that they are edgelands, margins, liminal spaces, 
the sort of places that I feel most comfortable in. Spaces where identities merge. Spaces where labels and badges have no place. If you want to see action in the countryside, counsels Tristan Gooley, look to the hedges and the edgelands. In his book, Wild Signs and Star Paths, he writes, At all times of the year we should expect to notice more happening at the edges than at the heart of woods, water, or wide open spaces. Since there is more intense animal and plant activity at the edges, it makes sense for us to give them more of our attention. The edge can work over varying scales. Some stretch for miles, others just a few metres. We will see more wildflowers at the edge of paths and tracks than in the middle, or ten metres away. Small islands are in permanent contact and tension with the surrounding water, making each island one big edge. This is one reason why islands are areas of relatively intense activities. There may be ducks on an island in the middle of a pond, but thousands of birds on a rock out at sea. Why are edge areas such magnets for life? Part of its simple maths, the border areas are suitable for all the creatures on either side, and some that need both. Imagine the edge of a wood that meets pasture. For simplicity, let's say the wood is a suitable habitat for 500 species, and the pasture is suitable for a different 500, while another 500 need both. It's conceivable that we will see any of the 1,500 species at that contact zone, but only a third of them, 50 metres on either direction. Also, most prey animals prefer some cover and will not take to open ground unless they have to. Animals tend to follow and cling to edges, boundaries, walls and hedges. So all edges are natural highways and it follows that where there is greater activity, there is opportunity. Studies have revealed that predators are more active at the edge than in the interior. The edge is a sign that things will happen. It's good advice for spotting wildlife, but it's also good advice for finding wisdom. A stream of wisdom that flows outside the mainstream a non-canonical wisdom. To use neuroscientist, psychologist and writer Sharon Blackie's description, a wild, loamy wisdom, unbound but deeply rooted. And I love what she writes about hedges and hedge wisdom in her book The Enchanted Life. She writes, It's a funny creature, the word hedge. Like all the best words, it's something of a shapeshifter. We use it mostly to convey a boundary, something which closes us in, keeps us neat and safe and well-behaved in the like-for-like boxes we live in. Think of the modern suburban hedge, regimented rows of neatly clipped, soldless leylandi, privet which has been so harshly pruned that it's forgotten how to bloom, these are the hedges we've created for ourselves, 
These are the hedges which define us. But we also use the word hedge to indicate a quite different kind of boundary. The wild margins which surround the cultivated fields. Think now of the gnarly old hedgerows of Britain and Ireland. Think richly flowering buried hawthorn and elder, blackthorn and hazel, an abundance of food and shelter for wild things. Secret places where treasure might be found, where birds might speak to you and foxes shelter while singing to the stars. The suburban hedge walls us in, the wild hedge marks the edge beyond which freedom lies. The place where village becomes forest. There's nothing safe about an ancient hedge. On the other side lies the dark wood and the road which goes ever on. An ancient hedge is an enchanted place, a place where anything might happen. A liminal place where the wisdom of the wild margins is available to all. Hedge wisdom. The wisdom of the wild world, unfettered by rules and impossible to institutionalize. Hedge wisdom is on the rise, as our social, political and religious institutions continue to fail us, and as we see them begin slowly to crumble as we watch the consequences of our own actions deplete, pollute and choke the planet. More and more people are looking beyond the rigid and increasingly decadent Western establishment for answers to the ever more urgent questions of how we should live now. People are looking to the wisdom which all the old stories tell us can be found on the fringes in the forest, in the wild thickets of ancient hedge. Hedge wisdom. I love that. It so neatly maps onto John Moriarty's notion of bog soul. In his later life, it was one of Moriarty's driving ambitions to set up, or perhaps more accurately, to re-establish the Hedge School. It was something that I had not come across before and initially thought that it was something conceived in John's ever-inventive mind. However, I went on to find that Hedge Schools had a long history in rural Ireland, and actually Sharon Blackie also mentions them. They arose as a result of the suppression of education and schooling in Ireland under Protestant English rule. This saw the legislating of schooling to be open only to those of the Protestant faith, and secret and illegal hedge schools, sometimes also referred to as dissenting schools, began to form, first under Cromwellian rule. But then it also saw a flowering within the 17th and 18th centuries. These were schools that were literally held under hedges. One of the earliest accounts is provided by the Irish writer William Carlton, who in 1830 published The Hedge School as part of his three-volume work Traits and Stories of the Irish Peasantry, 
And he writes this: the very name and nature hate schools are proof of this. He'd just been arguing that within the poorer groups and the rural peasants of Ireland, there was this strong desire for learning and for education. For what stronger point could be made out an illustration of my position that the fact that, despite the obstacles, the very idea of which would crush ordinary enterprise, when not even a shed could be obtained in which to assemble the children of an Irish village, the worthy pedagogue selected the first green spot on the sunny side of a quickset thorn hedge, which he conceived adapted for his purpose. And there, under the scorching rays of summer sun, and in defiance of spies and statutes, carried on the work of instruction. It was under the sheltering cover of hedges that Catholic children and those too poor to attend schools were educated, freely, abundantly, subversively. Reading about these little groups, and now standing here beside this hedge, so vibrant with its fiery cherry reds of hoar and hip, the image seems so apt. I too find myself wishing that education was a little more like this. I mean, not the cruelty or the suppression, the fear and the discomfort, but something open, free. Abundant, wet with dew and rooted in the soil, I find myself wanting to bring this clayey soil into the classrooms and lecture theatres on the sole of my boots. But the housekeeping department will not love me for that. And to talk to students, not just about the tropes of seeding growth in ancient literature, but to teach them. The different ways that they can plant their food, and to see it grow in front of them. A few years ago, for Green Week at our university, someone from the estates team made hundreds of little wooden planters from old pallets. Compost soil and hundreds of packets of seeds were provided, and anyone who wanted to do so could plant their own little herb garden. There were a lot of takers. But it was also startling to learn for how many of them that this was the first time that they had ever planted seeds. One young woman, very carefully, made a little hole in the soil with which she had filled her planter, and then tipped the entire packet of parsley seeds into the hole. I find myself restless. Yes. We are in desperate need of a bit of hedge in our education. Oh, it's easy to romanticise about these schools, and in truth, reports of them vary: their effectiveness, the quality of their teaching that they provided, and Carlton appears to be determinedly unabashed in his praise for them. Something's actually particularly surprising, given his general anti-Catholic stance. He even goes so far as to contend that I have no hesitation in saying that young men educated in Irish head schools, as they are called, have proved themselves to be better classical scholars and mathematicians, generally speaking, 
than any proportionate number of those educated in our first-rate academies. But even Carlton had to concede that the general perception of such schools was pretty poor, and even at times morally suspect. Hence, in part, his writing of such an eulogetic apology for them. Nonetheless, there are lots of contemporary accounts of men and women facing prison if they were found, selflessly sharing their education, their knowledge, and importantly their wisdom onto the next generation. John Moriarty's biographer Mary McGillicuddy notes that John's grandmother was educated through this wild and informal school, and that her family had a long association with it. And these hedge schools, the actual term first emerges in the early 18th century, were in fact just a newer incarnation or form of an older system, the Bardic schools. And they also arose from an earlier crisis of oppression and occupation, some arguing that they go as far back as the Druidic period and served as a way of keeping old wisdom and law and culture alive under Roman occupation. Later, these were to evolve into places committed to the retention and development of Irish language, Gaelic literature, keeping alive their sense and perspective of history, and importantly, Brechon law. Liminal, dissenting. Systems of education that ran outside and sometimes even counter to the main thoroughfares, untamable, exhibiting characteristics of those that dwell within the hedgeways. Education has, and will always be, a slippery political snake to handle, as anyone in education will tell you. Education, like hedges, contain both light and shade. You live with both with care. But it's always been there, this wisdom of the byways and the hedges, handed down in informal ways, often by word of mouth, rhyme and story. A wisdom that shows the pathways on how to live in this world, not according to the received wisdom of those who have lost their way and no longer can remember the taste of dew on their lips or the haunting depth of the robin's song, but which, like these desire paths I have been following, is untamed, wild, spontaneous in its deep knowledge and experience of the land, that knows how to hug low across the landscape's riding contours, but also bursts upwards, free, able to create honey-scented new lines, new skylines, creative and uncontained. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside 14.2 degrees. Inside 22 degrees. Humidity 
86 percent. Dew point 13 degrees. Wind direction east northeast. Wind strength 3 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1025.1 rising. Cloud cover 6%. Cloud ceiling none. Precipitation nil. Moon phase 88.7%. Waning gibbous. Day length 13 hours 34 minutes. Sunset 1953. Skycasting 621